right, thanks. Well, it's a great pleasure being here. Thanks for coming. And um, I'm seeing a lot of new faces. And I guess that was the, the, the idea of Peter that I also get to know all of you. What I want to talk about today is ongoing work uh, on the Spitfire, which sort of merges my passion for aviation uh, with a bit of uh, serious work. It's ongoing, but uh, I thought for a Monday evening it would be just the right uh, uh, topic. Um, the context really is one that we uh, you know, all uh, see uh, in, in every market pretty much. And uh, I don't know if you saw the news yesterday. Apparently, we're all using our mobile phones for three hours or smartphones for three hours. And Felix is using his right here. Thank God he's not an MBA student. <laughs> Thanks, Felix. That was easy. Uh, Can I put it away now? <laughs> please do. Uh, incidentally, uh, who, who's got an Apple iPhone? Just hands up. Who's got a Samsung? Who has switched between the two? No one. Interesting. All right. Now, um, if we talk about uh, um, uh, innovation competition, the smartphone wars that we all read about in the papers is, of course, a topic that comes up uh, quite frequently. The Apple iPhones battling it out against the, uh, the galaxies. And I'm just showing you here the, uh, the various uh, uh, product generations. Now, Apple, of course, brings out um, a, a, a new phone every year. And sometimes these are modular. Uh, innovations where we're simply you know, a new processor is added or a bit more memory or, for example, the finger touch sensor. Or sometimes these are, uh, some years, these are radical uh, or sort of, uh, um, yeah, integral changes to the product architecture itself. Uh, when, for example, we go to an iPhone 6 or an iPhone uh, uh, 6 large. And Samsung very much mirrors this. Um, now, as an Apple iPhone user, the very first question you always get is, how's your battery? Uh, holding up. Um, so I did check, actually, as we were talking about innovations. The battery capacity actually almost doubled. Uh, sorry, uh, more than doubled in the uh, Apple iPhone. And of course, still, it's, it's very, very poor. But that really shows you uh, uh, one of the key features um, when we talk about product innovation is the multiple uh, um, uh, trade-offs that we all observe. And in fact, if you ask consumers what matters to their iPhones, and I'm sure you will have a few uh, to add. I do this for my students <coughs> um, every year. It's quite amazing what kind of list they, they come up with. So really, multiple performance criteria um, are, are at play here. Uh, it's not just sort of the actual screen size or the computing um, speed. Now, I've just used some data from Gartner here just to show you that the, the outcomes of the smartphone wars um, are actually much more staggering than I thought. We all know about Nokia and, and, and Blackberry. I guess I wasn't quite aware of Samsung's stellar rise in, or probably at the expense of Apple. And of course, that's subject to the uh, discussions on uh, reacting and possibly imitating, if not copying, uh, your uh, customers' uh, uh, technology. For those of you, um, Samsung is a key provider of Apple screens and processors. Um, so when you look at all these uh, lawsuits, um, it's quite interesting to see that they do stand in various relationships um, uh, to, to date. Now, the space or the industry I know most about and have done most of my work in is, is automotive. And here we observe something very similar. And I've just given you uh, an example here of the two products that, uh, when I got my driving license, were the two uh, main rivals in the German market. The, uh, for you, the, the Vauxhall Astra, uh, or Cadet, as it was at the time, uh, and the VW Golf. Both designed in Germany, both manufactured in Germany. Uh, and generally being number one and two in, in, in their home market for, for sales. Again, interestingly, very different uh, innovation uh, philosophies behind it, and again, leading to very different uh, outcomes in terms of market success. Um, as you can see, they both started out at pretty much the same level, 
uh, spiked in the 90s, and from then on it was almost a free fall for General Motors Europe, and VW stabilized on the uh, uh, Golf uh, um, sort of Mark 7 sales. You can see it around about 200,000 units. <clears throat> Still being the best-selling car in, in Germany, whereas uh, Astra dropped down uh, from second to tenth place. The question I generally get asked here is, well, what is the impact of VW's platform strategy behind this very big differential in, in success? And I really uh, uh, don't have much to say. Of course, what we do know is that when going from the Generation 4 introduced in late 1997, um, we do know that VW started very extensively sharing the underlying platform across models. Uh, any guesses how many other cars were on that same platform <coughs> on the Mark IV Golf? Cars that share the exact identical running gear. You get the Skoda, you get the Audi A3, you get the TT, uh, you get the Beetle, and you get the Seat. Yeah, and you, you missed one. It was two Seats. <laughs> Otherwise, absolutely well done. Um, so it's the Seat Leon and the, and the Toledo. So six other cars share the exact same running gear. And um, the question that really uh, uh, was never really answered empirically, or I've yet, uh, you know, I've not found, found a way to answer empirically, is uh, to what degree is such modular innovation really, really effective uh, in the marketplace and has she has contributed uh, to, to this differential uh, outcome in terms of, of market success. Um, so, noting all sort of the, the multiple trade-offs, uh, the fact that innovations, product innovations can be modular, integral, but also seeing that really um, brand preferences and subjective liking of a product or a brand really mediate strongly between uh, uh, a product performance and its market success. Um, I ended up in a, in, a, in a fierce debate with my colleague Fritz Pill about this, and he was telling me, oh, we should, we should study product architectures and we should look into these modular innovations. And I said, look, this is all nice and well. In fact, uh, I, I, I was, had a sort of bit of a grumpy old man moment, and I used the B word uh, describing many of the innovation studies, simply because I felt that unless we know we have a direct link between performance and outcome, that's not mediated by whether or not you like an iPhone or whether you like Apple or not, really these innovation studies uh, didn't make uh, much sense. So I said, you know, if only we could observe competition in a clear setting with a clear outcome variable, and uh, well, we could study modular and integral and also visible versus invisible uh, types of innovation. You know, then we could actually make some predictions on how do you respond to Apple launching uh, the 4S versus how to respond to Apple launching the iPhone 6, you know, modular versus integral uh, um, uh, changes. And we were debating this as we were going to Duxford, the Imperial War Museum. And of course, it struck me that maybe we're looking at just the setting right there and then and here's the British totem, or the icon. So it was so glorious, I had to put this in. So. <laughs> um, we were looking at the Spitfire. And of course, the Spitfire uh, marks a near-perfect, uh, 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 sort of an extreme case of competition, as it was going head-to-head -head with the uh, uh, Luftwaffe counterpart, the, the Messerschmitt uh, 109. Interestingly, both aircraft were launched pre-war because both air forces felt that they didn't have a, a competitive fighter. They both, both launched an internal uh, 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 competition uh, for, well, obviously an internal one, um, a, a competition to design a new fighter aircraft to replace 
the old biplanes and the fixed gear aircraft that were being used uh, uh, in air forces at the time. Uh, the winning design was the Spitfire in the UK and it was the 109 uh, in, uh, in Germany. Uh, they both flew in 1935 and 36 respectively. And of course, uh, Mark sort of what we, you know, in, in literature terms, uh, would call the perfect Red Queen uh, example, um, taken from, from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Um, now here you see it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. If you want to get somewhere else, you must run at least twice as fast uh, <clears throat> uh, as that. I'm sure you all remember uh, 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 this from Alice in Wonderland. And um, so what we have is a, is a near perfect uh, case really where two products go head to head and of course innovate uh, over time. Uh, not only that, can we see the products, we also actually have phenomenal amounts of data on their operational history. So, as we were looking at the Spitfire in Duxford, I thought, well, why don't I give the historian in Duxford a ring, Peter Merton, who's been tremendously helpful, um, who in fact uh, said, well, you know, all the Spitfire data is available. And by the way, all the production data has been transferred to Vickers, and the Vickers archives are held in Cambridge University Library. And I thought, oh, that's convenient. Um, so what we have are, for example, here are production records um, of, of one particular Spitfire being produced and uh, handed over, so you can actually see by date uh, what happened. And even more conveniently, um, many enthusiasts over time, Morgan and Chuck Lady being the best, this is the Bible, have actually typed this up, and uh, it is available in, in such form. Again, it doesn't really make much sense, but if I pick out one, one record, you'll actually see how rich this, this data uh, is. So this is K9793. Um, its entire history. It's a Mark 1A Spitfire. It's got a Merlin II engine. <clears throat> it was sent to Martlesham Heath for service uh, in September 1938. And you can actually tell what's happened to it. Uh, this one, unfortunately, was shot down in 1914 near Dungeness at 410 in, in the afternoon. Yeah? Yes. Can you talk about your first examples were sort of in different contexts than this, where here you have governments and other types of sort of actors involved, I'm guessing as well, or is there sort of open competition to create, a, create these fighter planes? So can you talk about the comparative differences, sort of looking at the automotive or cell, you know, mobile phone mm -hmm. company versus this setting? Yeah. Well, the key difference is that you had um, one, one contract, right, rather than selling two million, two and a half million cars in the UK, where we have two and a half million individual contracts. Right. Here you have two governments uh, uh, you know, having, uh, issuing one contract each to build the fighter plane. And then of course what happened was that all the design bureaus and all the aircraft companies at the time were putting in bids. Um, and just like it happens today with, with defense procurement, uh, a couple of uh, were chosen to develop trial planes, prototypes. Prototypes were flown. If they don't crash, that's generally a good sign. Those that, well, no, you're laughing, right? A lot of prototypes crash. Uh, those that do hardly ever get chosen. And um, so in this case, it's sort of a single contract that was, that was issued. That's what I'm wondering if, given that you're looking at this specific context, how does it then translate into the two first examples that you had? I'm guessing there's some quite significant differences given that. In the context, sure. Uh, in the actual product updating, I don't think so, because we, in the same way as we have for a phone, you know, a different processor, different RAM, what you'll see is we'll have different engines, different guns being put in. So the actual updating of the product is remarkably similar if you compare it to a phone or a, or a, or a car um, and goes to the same generations as, as the iPhone does. Although the initial procurement, is, of course, is very different. Yeah. 
Yep, please. Are you dealing with the, with the difference at the strategic level? Because for example, British, they had the heavy bombers. Germans didn't have equivalent of that. Germans have also heavy, not heavy, heavy fighters like measures 110. Mm -hmm. British, uh, they were also having different strategic levels. So they they put resources into different things. Let's say German put resources into developing uh, jet engines, for example. Right, we'll, we'll come to that, all, all of that. Um, um, uh, th there will always be, uh, um, well, so ne neither the, the Spitfire nor the 109 were the only fighter aircraft. So we have to control for general uh, uh, fighter strength. Um, we look at those two aircraft because they came head-to-head -head, um, very early in the war, and you can actually see very, very nicely how they actually were, were, were competing in terms of uh, um, shot, you know, levels of being shot down and surviving. Um, the Hurricane, the other fighter, which in numbers was larger on the British side, for example, was, was, was inferior to the 109. They didn't even attempt to go after the 109s. In fact, they were going after the bombers that were coming over. And what you're describing, um, you will see actually in the data as a spike when the RAF strategy went from defending the home country towards taking the bombing, uh, you know, escorting the Halifax and the Lancasters over uh, and the Stirlings over to, to, to the continent. Um, at that point in time, you'll see spikes in damage actually rising because then the role for the Spitfire also changed. Yeah, but it's a very, very good comment. And of course, at the end, uh, you'll actually see um, what, what you already uh, said what, what will happen. Um, right, well, um, so what we have is full operational data for all 22,964 Spitfires ever made, meticulously documented, uh, to this fact that I could, uh, you know, as we were remembering Armistice Day, uh, um, 70 years ago, to this day, seven, uh, sorry, uh, five Spitfires were lost. For example, uh, 10410 uh, was hit by flak um, and failed to return, FTR, um, or, you know, 18556. Uh, was, was, was hit by flak and abandoned. Or, or this one, for example, this is a sea fire, sea-based or a, you know, air, uh, um, carrier-based aircraft, um, had a collision on landing and, and was abandoned. Um, equally, you can, you can look at sort of some other factors. For example, on Christmas Day, there was very little fighting up until late on in, in the war. Um, uh, no, no aircraft lost in the first three years, but then it built in 1944. I guess it didn't matter anymore. Uh, what, what day it was. But sort of very detailed, very rich data um, that, you, uh, that you get. In fact, not just the actual operational history, but also, um, which was fascinating, you learn a lot about the, the life of these squadrons. So this is uh, <clears throat> a squadron record uh, from Duxford, and on every day you actually see what, what happened. So just to give you a couple of, of examples. Um, so this reads, uh, His Royal Highness, the Duke of Kent, who had signified his intention of visiting the station and lunching in the mess, sent intimation that he had been delayed and would not be able to come. So this kind of detail you get. Um, or, for example, that a cinema show at the theatre hangar was run entitled Reno. Um, now, not so useful, but what is really useful in these records is that you get perfect, well, near-perfect customer feedback. Uh, you know, in the same way as you would collate it these days from social uh, media sites, um, this was all uh, uh, documented very nicely by pilots. For example, uh, here in response to a constant speed propeller being fitted, um, which performance, you know, now vastly superior, uh, shortened takeoff run, um, no more surging at 2,100 revs, the previous problem with the Merlin engine. Um, pilots are sort of very happy. Or here in response to a change in armament, um, 
just as you know, people might say, well, I love the iPhone 6 because here it's, you know, we love the new Canons because, um, you know, terrific destructive power. So you read this, and of course it's taken out of a context that's, you know, fortunately very uh, alien to us, but it's sort of phenomenal um, uh, uh, detail that you, you get in terms of um, looking at the, the performance, the respective performance of, of these updates. So let's have a look at them. And um, Felix was already asking uh, for it, and I'm sure this will stop him playing on the phone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, what I've brought is a couple of models here, um, a Mark I and a Mark IX Spitfire. And what's really interesting is there's five, five marks that um, were operational, some five major marks. So together they count for about two-thirds of all uh, Spitfires produced. And, and what you can see is that uh, the changes really um, affect many, many, affect all areas of, of the aircraft. Uh, for example, if you look at the, the engine output, Mark I was 1,000 horsepower, doubled. Equally, the entire performance criteria you know, went up quite drastically over the course of, of the war. Estates, for example, changed the changes in the um, armaments. Those were modular changes, but you'll also see that the, the airframe itself, itself has, has changed. So in the same way as uh, the iPhone 5 got a new casing, uh, the wings, for example, on the Mark 9 uh, uh, have changed, and you see um, considerable improvements in response uh, to, uh, to competitive action. So, uh, in 1940, the Spitfire was uh, um, more nimble uh, in terms of uh, turning radius, but it was <clears throat> a slower in climb and speed. So, uh, a key response uh, made to, to counter this. Yeah, Just a question. I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about performance, um, obviously the training performance that people find to make a major difference. You yep. can imagine better training leading to better outcomes with inferior hardware in some sense. Mm -hmm. So do you just use that as a control or or are you sort of thinking of the sort of combined some combination of machinery and training? Yeah, very good question. What is not possible is to tell exactly which pilot flew which sortie. Uh, the only thing we know is which pilot died in which aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so only the last sortie, if you wish, uh, you, you know about. But we do control for training hours, mm -hmm. which changed quite drastically over the course of the war. For the RAF, and you'll see this at the end, uh, actually stayed remarkably constant. Uh, for the Luftwaffe, it decreased, as you'd expect, mm -hmm. uh, quite remarkably. And of course, that should have led to uh, uh, changes in outcome. Um, sort of just to give you the, <clears throat> the, 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 the main marks here uh, as an overview, um, you know, there are even more as a table here. I don't want to go through them in detail, but let me just show you this. Um, you could draw the same charts for, for the iPhone or um, for any other uh, device, really. The different performance criteria. Um, interesting here is, of course, we, we're talking here at sort of the, um, uh, the introduction of the Mark V. Um, very little actually happened early on in, in terms of making the Spitfire better, apart from the increased engine power. And... Uh, the main improvements really came uh, later on with the integral changes to, to the airframe. Uh, we'll match this later to, to the, the, the outcomes. Um, but interesting, we were actually quite interested to note uh, how little had, had actually changed in the first two years um, of, of combat operations, apart from simply putting a, 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 higher, en a higher output engine uh, into the aircraft. Now... Um, on the other side, the same happened, and I'll, I'll pass those around here. So these are the two competing products. Um, 
again, uh, you see uh, in green is the uh, a Battle of Britain version, the original one, and uh, that was the um, email, the E version. Um, the, the, the 109 had the advantage of having been tested in, in Spain uh, prior to that, so the updates took place before that. Yeah, Mark? Yeah, so, sorry, question about the previous slide. Is yeah. Who's really the competition? You know, the, the German Air Force, are they the competition or are they the focus group? <laughs> isn't it that you know, all those competition were enhancements and the Spitfire driven by the appearance that, that by a change in market structure, suddenly you get the P-47 Thunderbolt, the P-51 uh, Mustang, which could have become alternative platforms for the Royal Air Force to fly, which mm -hmm. the Americans have delivered to the master of the Air Force, in the same way that they delivered them to the Russian Air Force. And so, you know, is, are the enhancements driven by what the German Air Force was fielding or by the fact that suddenly on the Allied side you get a competing product that is as good, if not better, than the older versions of the Spitfire? <laughs> no, an interesting point. Um, the, uh, uh, the P-51 is a very interesting uh, um, uh, case, and I was actually going to touch on it later. Um, it, it was not available in great numbers at the time when it really mattered for the main campaigns of the Royal Air Force. Um, and they would later accompany mostly the American bombers, right? So but their presence in the European circuit didn't really affect the, the, the operation of the Spitfire because the Spitfires would still do largely what they would, um, would have done so far. Um, but interesting about the P-51 is that it, it was a, a British commissioned design exactly. in the US. Right. And of course, it was a, a you know, very poorly performing aircraft up until the point when there was the model innovation of putting the Merlin engine into the P-51 and adding drop tanks to it, which made, gave it the range to, to, to really compete. Yep. But yep. in this case, when you have P-51, so the German have to be able to put them, improve the measures, means in response to that, they should, the British should improve the Spitfire. Yep, true. So yep. So what we, what we can't control for is to what degree the, uh, the, uh, the, the opposing side's response was driven by an improvement in the, 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 the Spitfire or by any other requirement, and such as facing the... You showed the Eastern Front when they use many ground support roles, so they have, kind of, they have to deal with two different type of requirements, yeah. Yeah, the Western Front and the Eastern, which is the game. And uh, yeah? Different direction. Sure. I mean, you also get, get uh, um, different uh, um, scenarios. On the Eastern Front, you know, without going into too much detail, um, there was hardly any com you know, uh, comparable aircraft to deal with. So I would argue that uh, what the, the Luftwaffe pilots faced led to very innovation that was interesting enough uh, to, to also improve the aircraft for the Western Front, simply because the Aleutians and so on. Aleutian II, for example, is the main fighter. It just wasn't up to, up to scratch. Uh, yeah, but no, it's, a, it's a good, good point. We, we can't control for all of it, right? We have a, a near-perfect setting uh, but sort of some issues um, that we have to admit to. So um, without going into any uh, greater detail, we, we can map 52 modular improvements on the Spitfire, nine integral changes uh, across uh, uh, the, the ones, uh, the Spitfires that we've, we've observed. And of course, coming back to the main objective, what we really want to work out is how the architectural choices have a direct effect on a performance in, in this very dynamic and extremely uh, ultra-competitive environment where you have a, a, a binary outcome of, you know, do you come home, uh, uh, yes, yes or not. Equally, uh, what's the, the importance of sensing? And interesting here, of course, is, well, to what degree do you see the changes in the product? Uh, the, the two that you've, you're seeing, actually, uh, you can see, you can spot the visible changes uh, to, to the aircraft. Um, some other changes, like an increased engine or uh, increasing 
uh, uh, firing rate you, you couldn't see. And of course, lastly, uh, then to, to be able to, to estimate how survival depends on both uh, those uh, architectural changes and the, the learning effects that we, we are seeing. Um, in terms of literature, um, I don't want to go through this in, in detail. Um, I'd be happily pass on the, 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 the working paper. Um, the Red Queen dynamic um, has been widely discussed. It has been suggested, which I think is, is, is a point uh, that links very nicely to the, the story of VW and, and Apple, um, that firms now um, you know, face an increasing rate of, of need to adapt and that they will have to recombine resources um, uh, to meet these pressures. In other words, uh, to what degree um, does the rate of change uh, have an effect on whether you choose to do a modular update of your existing product or uh, go for an integral uh, design change? Uh, learning we've, we've already uh, talked about. Um, so the choices you have really is you, uh, you, can, you can exploit the learning curve um, by taking your existing product and your process and make it uh, better. Um, you can opt for a modular architecture that allows you to swap key components of the product, such as the engine or the, the armament. And uh, you can try and, and, and develop uh, superior abilities to sense threats and opportunities. And of course, uh, crashed aircraft were immediately torn down and analyzed for, for competitive purposes at the time. In the same way as these days, the very first uh, cars that come off an assembly line uh, that are sold and freely available on the market go to the competitors to the teardown labs. Uh, and it's quite a fascinating uh, 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 thing to see. Uh, very rarely do you get access to this, but literally it will be taken apart to every bolt um, uh, to see what, what the competitors have done. That hasn't changed at all in the last 70 Yes. And of course, last but not least, innovation. Do you imitate? Do you opt for radical change? Uh, that, of course, is at the heart of the Apple-Samsung debate. To what degree did Samsung simply copy what Apple was doing and didn't know about a lot being a key supplier uh, into uh, the iPhone products uh, line? Um, so really, what we have in terms of uh, analysis, what, if a new, uh, the focal firm launches a new uh, product, you have a certain time where you have a relative advantage uh, during which the, the rival must, of course, first of all observe that a change has taken place, um, then um, uh, redesign the product, take action in terms of uh, changing it, and then deploy it. So there's, there's quite a bit of time delay. So what we're stipulating is that you can actually observe the relative performance of the various uh, uh, marks of these products competing against one another um, at the time. Enough of the uh, background. Here's some data. Um, this is what actually happened to the Spitfires. The main marks shown only uh, accounting for about two, two thirds of all Spitfires made. Um, and this was really, really, really staggering to me. First of all, um, he really didn't want to be in a Mark I Spitfire cockpit. Really didn't want to be there. Um, the odds improved quite a bit, um, um, but still, you know, weren't great. But it's a massive, massive change. Uh, uh, between a Mark I and a Mark, uh, Mark V, and then a continuous improvement uh, thereafter. Secondly, the uh, uh, failure not by enemy, of course, was, was something that we should not forget. Um, in fact, is uh, uh, much more important in terms of losing the aircraft uh, altogether. And this is pilots not being able to land, crashing on landing, um, uh, poor weather, just being lost. You're getting lost, not, not finding your, your way home. Um, and uh, simply you know, poor training, right? That's where poor training would, would come in. So uh, 
I had assumed that the uh, enemy action would have accounted for the majority of all losses, but, but not so. Uh, it was actually failure for, for, you know, not driven by enemy interaction that is the main, uh, main cause. So our argument is that the, the outcome, the survival outcome, we need to control for both uh, training as well as for, for the enemy uh, action. Um, and what it did remind me of is um, one of my flying instructors always said, you know, there's two things you need for a, for a flying accident. One is a pilot and the other one is an audience. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess, you know, he, he'd been in the area for a long time. After retiring, he was instructing uh, at Marshalls. But um, um, a lot can go wrong, and a lot can go wrong by poorly handling the aircraft without actually seeing a single enemy aircraft. Um, so here comes, that was your, your earlier point, uh, which was uh, very well made. Um, these are the, the instances of damages by Mark. And of course, what you do see here is the... Uh, the Battle of Britain, uh, where the, the Spitfire really became this iconic product uh, and the symbol of defiance um, um, uh, uh, on the British side. But later on, what you do see is that the Mark V actually sees some very, very heavy damages. And that is when the, the British uh, uh, Air Force switched tactics from defending towards escorting bombers over, over to the continent. So this is the, the, uh, the Ruhr Blitz. Right, so the big attacks on the industrial sites in, in uh, central Germany uh, that saw all these, these spikes. But overall, you can see um, you know, very differential uh, outcomes. Uh, and of course, uh, for the last, last marks, actually very little action um, uh, took place. The main load was taken by the Mark I uh, and uh, Mark V. Um, now, <laughs> Dave was laughing at me earlier because I was still running models just now. Caveat is we, we don't have the time-dependent covariates coded yet, mostly because the data on the German side has been lost and we're looking for proxies and that's not done yet. So I'm not showing a full model. I'm just, I just want to show you a quick overview um, how the odds by mark actually change. So this is a proportional uh, hazard model and as you can see, the odds uh, of survival um, don't in linear fashion, but you know, improve quite, quite a bit going from mark one uh, to mark 14 uh, over time. Interestingly, um, the, uh, uh, the modular changes uh, yield, to, yield immediate benefit, whereas the integral ones, in terms of the main changes uh, going, for example, from uh, uh, mark 7 to mark 8, uh, it's not so clear cut. You know, much more hit and miss in terms of what, what you see here. But just to give you a feeling of, of, of the difference in uh, um, in marks. I'm sure the coefficients will change, in particular once we actually control uh, for training levels. Um, yeah. um, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just skip this, just to go to Felix's point. Oh, it, <clears throat> you want to play with them again? No, stop. <laughs> 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 um, so what we do need to do is we need to control for a few things. Number one is uh, we're looking at one scenario of the entire war and the entire fleet of 109s, for example, was, was used uh, uh, in many other scenarios, as were the Spitfires later on, of course, you being used in, for example, uh, Malta or Northern Africa. Um, so what we're controlling for is the Western Front, um, uh, and we're looking at the, the Luftwaffe strengths that actually the British uh, squadrons faced while they were still deployed on, on, on UK soil, and of course, training hours. And I've given you sort of just an overview number here. Um, anecdotally, um, pilots have been you know, put into cockpits with two or three hours on type. Um, we'll have to ver verify this. This, of course, would basically be close to a suicide mission, right? Uh, 
uh, flying these complex aircraft. Um, but as you can see, uh, we definitely need to control for major, major differences in, in training levels. Yep. Were there any, during the war, any formation-related sort of innovations? And so in football, it used to be sort of, we just look at the athlete, which you're doing, you look at the athlete, but mm -hmm. formation and shape matters as well in terms of how many you're sending and, and how they go and so forth. Yep. Were you able to look at any of that? So what has changed were the tactics. According to, so um, as the engine power on the Spitfire grew, um, the ability was suddenly given that you could actually, you know, wait for, for the incoming enemy aircraft and basically try and attack them coming from the sun from high above using an advantage of speed uh, yeah. when you attack. Um, so the tactics did change in relation to the abilities of the aircraft. But I'm also wondering in terms of formation of numbers that you're sending and so forth. So in the first Iraq war, this actually played out. And so you had the MiGs and I think it was F-16 or something like that. The MiGs were super fast, but as the F-16s turned faster, mm -hmm. they were able to just veer around and come behind the MiG. And there's a good uh, BBC special that sort of covers that. But, but, but um, is there, we're all... Oh, no, I've, <laughs> I've, I've watched a lot. I was I've in the military in Finland when this happened. So I, <laughs> I mean... I, but do you have any that type of information? We do know that the tactics changed. Um, so very clearly, uh, early in the war, it became clear that the Hurricane was not competitive against the 109. So after heavy losses, it was decided that the Hurricanes should not engage the fighters. Yeah. So that was the first tactical decision. And then uh, what, what became clear was that the Spitfire was able to turn faster. So they were trying to engage the 109s in close combat where turning mattered. Whereas, of course, the 109s were trying to be high up and faster uh, and, and, and try and beat right. it. So it was really a positioning, a strategy uh, game. Yeah, please. During the Battle of Britain, there is, a, there is at least one major, major change in um, tactics, which is um, historically the uh, British squadrons would go up one squadron at a time. Towards the end of the Battle of Britain, there was a big innovation where they did what was known as Big Wing, which is where they'd sent up vast numbers of fighters simultaneously to intercept, coming in um, very, very large um, bomber waves. <coughs> there was this idea that this actually uh, destroyed the morale of the Luftwaffe because they assumed that they'd actually ground down um, all the British. Uh, interceptor squadrons, and so this is the kind of innovation that we're really talking about, which isn't really to do with performance per se, uh, but it was actually a um, it was a shift in uh, tactical command. Um, so if you read various kinds of histories of the, uh, the Battle of Britain, this <laughs> believe me, I've, I've read them all. <laughs> yeah, <if I> know. <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so what, what we, we've tried to, to um, look into, so uh, radar was one of our variables previously. Uh, and of course, radar was, was prevalent on both sides, right? Uh, the German radar, in fact, was more advanced. Um, but the British radar was used very effectively in coordinating, you know, sensing and coordinating the, the response of, of, of the fighter aircraft. Um, we've, we've tried to code it, uh, but it's really hard to say, you know, what, what's the quality of that, that radar cover or that radar detection ability. Uh, so if you've got any good ideas, you know, you could use the proxy for number of operational stations or miles uncovered, you know, uh, or not covered by, by radar. 
uh, multiple proxies that we could use. But yes, we looked at exactly the radar and the tactical um, advantage that that gave, right, by sensing. Um, yeah. But a good point. Again, you know, we, we're trying to uh, bring it down to, to one race, uh, of course, that has many variables, some of which we, we can, others we, we know we can't control. Um, for. Another one that we would love to do, and of course many people have tried this before us, we'd love to actually match individual aircraft to individual aircraft, right? Uh, unfortunately, the records on the German side were lost or destroyed. Um, uh, that's not possible. Equally, we'd love to control for the flying hours. Um, so you could say you know, an aircraft may survive for longer, but of course if it has flown less sorties, its risk overall was lower. Uh, we'd love to control for that, but that's equally not, not, not recorded. It's a super stupid question, but, but you're looking at loss rates on part of the Royal Air Force, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you do the iPhone comparison, this is kind of saying that many iPhones kind of went up in flames and self-destructed, and but, but whether they actually had a signal and you were able to send text and make phone messages <laughs> doesn't matter. Wouldn't, wouldn't you have to, I mean, the measure of effectiveness here, is it really the loss rate or is it the combination of the loss rate plus how many Germans you are in that can... <laughs> so, no, 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 yeah, no, so it's a good question. So. What we're interested in is the performance. No, that's a fair point. So the argument is that you know we look at the performance of a product, and we, when we look at the market success of the iPhone, um, I would say the minority and Nancy, you know, could probably tell much more in terms of what the marketing effect is in, in, in Apple's brand management. I would say, you know, the majority of Apple customers buy it because it's an Apple product and not because it's faster. Uh, you know, it has more memory or more functionalities. So the argument here is that we, here we have two products. We have the iPhone and the Galaxy, and we have a single outcome measure. You know, who succeeds, who's better. Um, this allows us to study um, how, how the firms, you know, Bioflugzeugwerke versus Supermarine uh, and all the various production sites got to producing a, a product that was better by studying how they got there. You know, was it a modular integral innovation? Was it visible, invisible? What was the best response to a better engine in the 109? So what, what should Apple do if Samsung suddenly launches a better processor in, in its, its Galaxy S5? You know, should it stay? Should it uh, you know, think about the iPhone 7 or the 6S with an equally good processor? What's the right response? So that's the connection. Um, uh, in that sense, you know, the outcome measure may be survival in this case, but really it's performance brought down to a single variable. Uh, that's, that's really what's, what the beauty is. Hmm. Right, um, last but not least, and um, I know it's Monday evening, um, how the story ended, and it was already mentioned. Now, very interestingly, of course, the module innovation that really produced the best possible fighter uh, uh, or the best propeller fighter in the war was the P-51, as I mentioned earlier. So Felix here for you uh, again. Um, this has got, it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, uh, um, the best design, and it interestingly merges many of the aspects what the Supermarine Spitfire pilots were criticizing, which was the, the high canopy, which allowed for good visibility also backwards, which the Spitfire until the Mark 14 didn't have, a huge oil cooler at the, the bottom that allowed for efficient cooling, and of course very stubby wings that allowed for great uh, 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 turn, turn rate. Now, um, this was the most successful design uh, by, by most people's and pilots' uh, admission, but of course, it was a discontinuous evolution uh, that really was introduced at the end of, of the war. Uh, it came in the fall of the Messerschmitt 262 and the Gloucester Meteor, um, 
whereby uh, at the end of all um, uh, propeller-driven uh, fighter aircraft really was, uh, was called upon, and that was the turbojet engine uh, that was introduced and produced uh, fighters of a performance far superior uh, than any of the, uh, the others. Um, and in many ways, you know, if you look at the F-22 Raptor, the most you know, uh, elaborate fighter design uh, the U.S. Air Force is flying today, well, possibly with the exception of the F-35, but you know, still got two engines, a tricycle gear, uh, two wings, a single fighter pilot, still burns the same fuel. So in many ways, we have seen uh, gradual updates of this very design that uh, was sparked uh, by Gloucester Meteor and uh, Messerschmitt 262 designers uh, at, at the end. Uh, of, of the war. Right, um, that's all I wanted to say. Um, I hope you enjoyed this little excursion into uh, World War II times. Um, it's ongoing work. Uh, I'm greatly enjoying it, mostly because I get to go to the museums and I get to watch all these BBC documentaries. Uh, last one was Gay Martin's, uh, Guy Martin's Spitfire. Uh, she ran on BBC3 again yesterday. Of course, I had to watch it yet, yet another time. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, there will be a proper paper coming out, uh, and I'd be greatly appreciate any comments or suggestions. Uh, obviously, you know, it raises many questions, uh, and thanks for those comments. All right, thank you. Yeah.